All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Back Patent Day. It's uh, Friday, so reach around, pat yourself on the back, and uh, say, well, you made it to the weekend. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville, and I am the Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. All right, uh, let's, uh, well, I'm going to start out with a little bit of a commentary today that probably a lot of people are not going to like. Now, now most, most show producers and people in talk radio will tell you, don't lead with a story that's going to make everybody mad. So, so this may not be the best decision that I've made today, but um, it's just a short little commentary. Biden's taking a lot of heat right now about shooting down these objects um, after the Chinese surveillance balloon went all the way across the country. So the heat that he's taking is are, are things like people have calculated how much all this cost. You know, you've got a, a 200, is it 200 million or billion? I can't remember which I think is 200 million dollar jet fires a $400,000 missile to take out a $12 balloon. And it's it's beginning to look more and more like these last objects were not Chinese origin or Russian origin. They were just stuff floating around up there. One was kind of like a hobby. Some hobby club had their balloon up there, and all of a sudden they lost track of it. And lo and behold, it's likely because it was shot down by an F-2022. So now you've got all the memes and, and all, a lot of politicians putting out tweets and basically saying, you know, Biden is protecting us from the hordes of science students that may be invading and could take over the country. Look, I, I get that. I, I guess you've got to be ready for a certain amount of ribbing the way this thing has gone down. But when you stop and think about it, I mean, there's we're, we chastise the Biden administration, I think rightly, because you have a Chinese surveillance balloon that is a clear and present danger. I mean, yeah, it may not have been an immediate danger to drop a bomb or something like that, but it's spying on us. It's collecting information. It's pretty sophisticated. I think that is where our attention needs to be drawn. But what happens is NORAD begins to focus, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, they begin to focus their radar. They start adjusting their detection devices, and now they're seeing everything. I mean, whereas before they were being criticized for not seeing the balloon, and now we're hearing that they really did see it. They, just, they tracked it. They just didn't shoot it down. But when they, when they focus their equipment, they start finding all these things that are car-sized, less than car-sized, really don't pose any kind of threat. But because it's at a strata where airplanes fly, then we're going to take them, just, just take them down out of an abundance of caution. And so the president finally addresses the country about this, and he's, he's fessing up, basically, that the Air Force has been shooting at things that don't really make any difference, that are probably privately owned, company owned, and in one case, high school science student owned. And uh, they're, they're, they're being shot down. But I don't know, I don't know that the president can win on this. And, I, and then I'm going to come back and tell you what I think the real issue here is. But I, there's no way the president can win. I mean, he, 
it, once the balloon appeared and once it became widely known that we had a Chinese surveillance balloon just uh, lazily drifting across the country, um, there was no way that President Biden was going to be able to spin that in some kind of positive fashion. And so the response, the knee-jerk response, is an overreaction. We'll shoot down everything. We'll show the world that the Biden administration's tough. We're not going to allow $12 balloons. We're not going to allow science projects by high school students that are rogue and no telling what they're trying to find out about the country. We're, we're not going to let that happen to our society. You know, I, that's not what they really said. But I really think there was a decision made to be aggressive. You know, somebody made the statement that after not shooting down anything over the United States for 70-plus years, then all of a sudden we're shooting down everything. We, we have three shoot-downs, four, counting the Chinese balloon, four shoot-downs in about a week. And now we're being told that the debris, you know, at first, well, we're going to look at the debris. We'll be able to tell you everything about it. Now we're being told the debris can't be found. Well, I guess not. I mean, you blow up a balloon with a missile. I mean, and I'm not talking about the Chinese balloon. I'm talking about a small balloon about the size of a car. You blow it up with a with a missile from an F-22. I wouldn't think you would find very much. I mean, it'd be kind of like shooting a pigeon with a double-barrel shotgun loaded with magnum buck, buckshot. I mean, it, it, there's not going to be much left. And so, in any event, um, we're, we're not going to know much more about that. I think, I think the reason, though, this time we're not going to know much is not because it's a threat, but because it's an embarrassment. Not because we should be concerned that we've got UFOs flying around out there, but because we have a, a president who may be seeing UFOs in his sleep. I mean, I, you know, President Biden got a full physical. The report was released that he's an energetic, vigorous 80-year-old, but they didn't do anything to check for mental acuity, which, or if they did, they're not going to release that information. So around the White House, the the chatter is, you know, that leaks out every now and then, is that his age is very much a concern because of the way he conducts himself from day to day. But I'm going to give the president a little bit of slack on this one. I mean, I I, I know we don't want ever. When I do that, people are just they they just start howling because everybody everybody hates Biden and. And, and look, for good reason, there's a lot of concern over the Biden administration. They're the most progressive administration, I think, in U.S. history, even exceeding Woodrow Wilson, which is saying something, um, and also exceeding uh, FDR. But this particular instance, I mean, I think it was a case of underreaction that led to overreaction. And that's not an excuse, but I think I think Republicans need to be careful sometimes how far we carry this narrative about Biden, because I think there's a point for the American people when they're going to view this as piling on. And you don't ever, no matter if you don't like somebody, you don't kick them when they're down. You don't pile on. And I think that that 
you know, people in the middle that don't pay attention to this every day, that probably don't listen to this radio program, but are probably also not paying a whole lot of attention to the news. If they're if they're just as I like to refer to them, headline readers and soundbite listeners, they're they're going to end up not liking the fact that Ted Cruz is out there uh, putting out tweets and memes about the president for his overreaction here. I think if people want anything, I think the thing they're going to be most concerned about is the Chinese balloon because it was a genuine threat. I don't think a whole lot of people are all that concerned once they realize we're not being invaded by another planet, uh, that E.T. hasn't gotten an attitude and, and come down here after us. But, you know, I think once they have, have determined that this is benign, but the president has been overreacting, I think piling on to somebody who's overreacting is not necessarily going to win you any points with the people. Not that everything we do has to be about points, but we do need to stop and think about how our rhetoric is going to affect the people, the way that people look at the rest of our message. Because if, if they get to where they don't like you, it's not going to matter what the message is. Can I give you an example of that? Ted Cruz probably has one of the best messages in terms of conservative ideology out there today. I mean, he's just a he he's he's a brilliant guy. Um, he looks at the issues, I think, in the right way. But people have decided that for whatever reason, he comes across as surly or arrogant or in some way that they don't appreciate. And when they decide they don't like you, it doesn't matter if you're right. It should. I mean, we should be able to look beyond personal preference to policy level, to whether what somebody is saying makes sense or not. But we're human beings, and we just we end up not doing that. If we decide we don't like somebody, we tend to just not listen to a whole lot that they have to say. Now, when it comes to in in the political arena as a whole, when people begin to use rhetoric that appears to be overreaction or piling on to somebody um, who maybe people think are trying to do what needs to be done with the shooting down of the objects. I'm just saying I think there's possibility of a backlash, and we don't need that. Let's just point to what happened and move on. I think the United States Air Force, the NORAD, our detecting devices, I think they went a little bit crazy. They overreacted to the balloon incident because the balloon incident was such a major embarrassment. Now, what's the real underlying issue? The issue for me is that with all the sophistication in our tracking, with all our sophistication in our detection capabilities, we don't know whether something flying around up there is a threat or a science experiment. That's the that's the real problem, I think. It's not what Biden did. It's not how he looked. It's not that he waited too long to shoot down the, the Chinese spy balloon. Yeah, there's stuff attached to that that we need to be concerned about. But what I'm really concerned about is if we've got all this sophisticated stuff, how come we didn't know that this was a science experiment? How come we couldn't tell that these, were, these objects were not a threat? And why is it that we detect them and then we can't identify them more than just a, a description of what the pilot can see? 
See, that's the kind of thing I thought our capabilities were beyond that. I thought this kind of episode would not be possible because of the sophistication of our capabilities in sensors, detection devices, the whole thing. But apparently um, the gap that we have is not an awareness gap when it comes to our airspace, but it's an awareness gap about what's in the airspace. We now kind of know what's out there. I mean, when there's something out there, we just don't know what it is. And after the balloon incident, because of the embarrassment that was to the Biden administration, we got a little bit trigger happy. So that, that and, and so I think the real focus needs to be on what do we need to do as a country to improve our intelligence gathering capabilities electronically, intelligence on the ground. I mean, just somehow to be able to make better decisions about what is flying around up there. And uh, just a quick announcement, the program as you know it in this format is going to wrap up on March 31st. Gary Miller is going to be retiring. 89.7, 91.9 FM frequencies are going to convert over to some type of music format. And uh, we're going to continue this program. All the other programs, you'll have to find them in, in different venues. But this program is going to continue uh, on a website through YouTube channel, through Facebook Live. Um, we've got um, a lot of stuff cooking. I was on the phone last night with Blacktop Media, and we're working on uh, the, changing the website domain. Uh, right now, the website domain, and, and if you go there, you can't get in because it's being re refashioned, but it's, uh, you know, TonyandHannah.com. And, of course, hadn't been Tony and Hannah for a while. So the new domain, I've, I've sent several suggestions over there. Um, but it, the new name for the program is going to be Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. So Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. So you can kind of write that down, think about it. That's, that's pretty much going to be it. And we're going to do it for an hour, Monday through Friday, from 7.30 to 8.30. So you'll be able to stream it live on your smartphone through your car uh, if you just go to the website. And the website will be easy to use. It's going to be user-friendly. You're going to be able to uh, move back and forth. I was talking to uh, Dr. Robert Jackson last night, and he tells me that he's going to be happy to have some of his content up there. So now I know that we're going to have Hannah, Corey, and Dr. Jackson, and probably some things from Austin. So it's it's going to be the website's going to be a cool place. Now, starting in March, we may make some minor changes to this show to kind of head toward the possibility of uh, starting the the new podcast oriented show on April on April 1st and that may start with well I don't know we may not I I'm, I, I, I want to start using the name more simply because I want you to be able to get the name sort of in in your brain so to speak so anyway just put this on your alert. March 31st, if you tune in here, you're not going to hear the program. You're going to have to go to whatever my new website domain is at 730 to be able to listen to the program. We're expecting to have uh, Senator Josh Kimbrell call in this morning. Uh, he usually checks in with us on Friday, so I'm going to be texting with him in a minute to make sure he has the opportunity to join us today. Uh, there's a new study out from Cedar sinai Hospital and Research Center 
that should grab the attention of anybody under 30, uh, 45 years old. If you're 25 to 44, if you fall within that window, um, you probably need to pay attention to this because it says that there's been a 30% increase during the first two years of the pandemic among young people dying of heart attacks. A 30% increase. Now, that's, that's huge because young people don't die of heart attacks, not as a rule. Healthy young people. Now, sometimes it happens. I mean, they could be born with a congenital heart defect that no, nobody detects, and then one day they die of a heart attack. Or, And, and particularly among athletes, there have been times when uh, athletes have an enlarged heart for whatever reason, and that can lead to a heart attack. But Dr. Dr. Marty McCrary at Johns Hopkins University, talking about this information, says that one theory is that heart attacks were brought on by COVID, so that the danger to young people in getting COVID was the risk of heart attack, not, not respiratory, not the possibility of the symptoms multiplying throughout the body, long COVID, all of that, that the main problem with COVID for young people, when I say young people, I'm talking about 25 to 44 was the fact that they they contracted COVID. But another theory that is backed up by the data says that the heart attacks are an effect of the COVID vaccine. So which, which is it? Is it you know, the, the media right now is primarily focusing on the fact that, well, they had COVID, and COVID caused so many problems. It caused myocarditis in young people, and the heart the heart attack and death rate skyrocketed because of that. But the uptick in deaths from heart attacks among young people didn't manifest itself until after the vaccine was rolled out. You remember we had COVID before we had the vaccine, and we didn't see this increase in heart attacks among 25 to 44 years old or year olds until COVID vaccines began to be widely distributed. And of course, it was really necess not ever necessary for young people who didn't have comorbidities to take the COVID vaccine because they weren't adversely affected. I mean, they got, they got sick. Some had very mild symptoms. Some had more intense symptoms. But there was no evidence that it was a threat to their life if you were young and healthy. Of course, we can't know that for sure because for whatever reason, the CDC won't give us breakout numbers. The CDC, we don't even know if any young person in the country died that was healthy died from COVID because they'll just give you an age range and deaths from COVID and they don't break out whether there were comorbidities, which makes all the difference in the world. I mean, somebody with leukemia, 25 to 44, somebody with an autoimmune deficiency, 25 to 44, that the likelihood is that they're going to be more adversely affected by COVID. But listen to this study out of Florida. The state of Florida looked at heart attacks among young people after the vaccine and discovered there was an 81% increase in sudden death from heart attacks in the months following the vaccine compared to baseline rates. Now, a baseline rate would be just normal circumstances. You, 
normally you're going to have a certain percentage of young people die from a heart attack, but they jumped 81% according to the state of Florida, which is why they decided to stop giving the vaccine or recommending that the vaccine be, be taken by people in this age group, 25 to 44. Many people believe the COVID vaccine is responsible for the increase. New research shows the risk of myocarditis from the booster is approximately the same as the risk from the original vaccine. The most notable observation of myocarditis has occurred after the second shot of a two-shot regimen. So what was happening, young people, 25 to 44, they go in, they decide they want to get the COVID vaccine just to be sure. They get one shot everything's okay. They come back, what, 72 hours later, they get the second shot, and within a relatively short period of time, they they develop myocarditis, and a certain number of them pass away from a heart attack. So it appears to be linked to the amount of COVID vaccine that a young person receives. Moderna has been restricted from giving the second dose to young people in parts of Europe. United States has an open policy. I mean, we don't really, we just put the vaccine out there and everybody decides what they're going to do about it. But in Europe, they've been limiting, they've been recommending cutting back from young people getting, certainly getting the second shot of a two-shot regimen, but they're recommending more and more that young people don't get the, the, uh, the virus, the vaccine in Europe. That's not happening here in the United States. Now, according to Dr. Marty McCary, which we've been talking about this information from him all along, he says one myth that is propagated by a lot of people in the medical profession is that myocarditis is more common after COVID infection than it is after the vaccine for COVID. We now know that the data does not support that. We now know it's up to 28 times more common for a young male to get myocarditis after the vaccine than after COVID. 28 times more likely. Young healthy people with no comorbidities are the least likely group to be seriously affected by COVID-19. The CDC refuses to break out the differences. We, we talked about that earlier, that they just won't tell us what the real uh, more morbidity or um, the, the rate, the possibility of, of death is for young people in that 25 to 44 age group. But it's clear that new studies are showing that it's much more likely that the link to myocarditis in young people is coming from the vaccine and not from actually having had COVID. So just things to think about. Does anybody watch The Masked Singer? Do you have any? Do we have any Masked Singer uh, fans, I wonder, out there in the audience? Um, I, don't, I don't watch those shows. I, I got into The Voice for about 10 minutes. I mean, I maybe watched a couple episodes. Uh, but... The Masked Singer, I just haven't. I haven't seen a single episode. I've seen the commercials, and that's about it. But they had kind of a neat surprise on Wednesday night, and I totally missed this yesterday. But legendary actor Dick Van Dyke caused a ruckus on Wednesday when the gnome face came off, and the audience realized that he was the Masked Singer. Now, 
the way they do this is they bring on these people in these elaborate costumes, and they have these really weird-looking masks. I mean, it, it could be anything. Like, like it says, Dick Van Dyke was in a gnome mask. And so, um, and, and then the, the big thing is, you know, take it off is what they start chanting. And then they take the mask off, and everybody's shocked and surprised and wow. And I mean, it, it's an it's interesting premise. I mean, I would kind of like, I probably, if I had time to waste, uh, which I don't, but, but if I did, I'd probably sit down and waste some time watching this. But I, I, had, I have to admit, I got a little nostalgic feeling when I went back and watched this on YouTube uh, because it happened, on, like I said, on Wednesday night. Fox had advertised the season opener as the most legendary, decorated, and beloved unmasking in history. And one of the judges, Nicole... Sh- uh, Scherzinger, yeah, I think that's right. I know I don't know who these people are. I I promise I'm just I'm pop culture Ill- illiterate in many ways. Uh, but anyway, Nicole Scherzinger Scherzinger's response uh, was just I mean she was crying almost uncontrollably. She burst into tears, um, and she basically said, "You know, you're my childhood. You're." You're, we love you. I love you. The the world loves you. And I mean, on and on. Um, and then she talked about how how handsome he looked. And I'll tell you what, for a ninety seven year old, he does look pretty good. I mean, he put on that costume, got out there, sang and danced a little bit, and then revealed himself at ninety seven. That's amazing. I mean, his mental acuity is probably better than the president's. So that, of course, that could be said of many people, but I, I would say that here of Dick Van Dyke because he was talking about the experience. He talked to Entertainment Weekly about it. He said, I was so positive that nobody would ever guess it was me, that they would have somebody 97 years old in there. And the experience was weird because they have to keep it a secret from the crew. So I walked around with my head covered and people leading me. They got a nice crew, but I never got to meet any of them. He said, he said the, the show was the weirdest thing that he's ever done. Um, he said, it's a good thing that I'm not claustrophobic because you could only see out of two really small holes in the headpiece. Uh, this is all according to Daily Wire, by the way. Once he got on stage and sang, however, people began to guess who might be behind the mask. But Dick Van Dyke wasn't among the guesses. Some of them guessed Tony Bennett some Dustin Hoffman, and some Robert De Niro. And Dick Van Dyke laughed about that. He said, wait a minute, two of those guys can't sing. And so he said, well, I felt pretty good about Tony Bennett, but I wasn't crazy about any of the other ones. But I knew that they couldn't guess who I was. <clears throat> I don't think anybody expected from my generation could would be on that show, so I knew I was going to fool them. They were surprised. I stepped out, and everybody's mouths dropped. I think some of those people thought I was dead. So pretty pretty good stuff coming from Dick Van Dyke. If you're a Mary Poppins fan, I went back this morning, I confess, when I saw this, I pulled up the Step in Time, uh, the Chimney Sweep dancers uh, from Mary Poppins and watched that segment. If, if you haven't watched, watch just that segment. I mean, it's just an incredible dance segment, the athletic ability uh, of, of those dancers and some of the stuff that they do is, uh, well, it's really entertaining, which is what television and movies used to be. 
They used to not be vulgar or politically woke or any of those things. They used to just be pure entertainment. But if you want to go back and look at that, that and, and watch the reveal, um, for, because it's it's pretty cool when they pull that mask off and Dick Van Dyke. And, and you see the response of the crowd was very positive. All right, I'm going to give you some information here that I know is going to shock you. So you might you might want to sit down. If you're having breakfast, you might want to swallow, take a sip of your coffee or orange juice and just sort of, you know, chill for a second because you're going to be so shocked by this information. Okay, according to a new survey, only 26 percent of Americans have a favorable view of the news media. Isn't that shocking? Of course, everybody knows that. You know, it's, but I, I have to tell you, it's a good thing that this information is beginning to be talked about more and more in the mainstream. Now, you're not going to have a whole lot of mainstream media report it because it doesn't make them look particularly good that 53% of Americans have an unfavorable view compared to only, only 26% that have a favorable view. And maybe the most telling statistic from this report is that 50% of the respondents believe that the news media is intentionally misleading their audiences compared to 25% who disagree. Now, there's a big difference between some people just getting it wrong, you know, people thinking, well, they made a mistake they in their reporting, so I really can't trust them. No, the reason most people don't trust them is because they believe they have the thumb on the scale. They believe that the news media is intentionally misleading them, and that's not good for the country. I mean, I we, we hear that and we think, well, it's about time somebody was revealing this, but we really shouldn't take any satisfaction in the same way that we shouldn't be too excited about the fact that most Americans have no trust left in federal law enforcement agencies um, or the, for the government to tell them the truth. I mean, one of the things that holds us together is our the trust that we have in our institutions. And one of those institutions is the media, and the trust is at an all-time low. I mean, people trust Congress less than they trust the media, but the media is down there close to the bottom of the list. And we need to trust people. That's why my new approach to radio and podcasting is going to be called Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. I I want you to know that I'm going to vet my stories. Now, that doesn't mean, and and, and I have been, by the way, I, I vet my stories now. But it doesn't mean I won't ever make a mistake because sometimes I do make a mistake. Yesterday, for example, I think I called the 1619 Project host uh, author Hannah Nicole Jones for the whole time, and her name is Nicole Hannah Jones. The Nicole comes first. But we can live with that kind of mistake. That's kind of a forget-to-carry-the-two and long-division kind of thing. But when people are intentionally misleading you, that's bad news. So you need to have a source to be able to get the news that has been vetted and being given by someone who's trying, who's my goal is to give you the truth about what's happening in the culture and about what's happening in politics. And those two things together kind of determine what kind of um, public quality of life we have. Now, I'm not going to say it's 
It defines our total quality of life because hopefully you've got a quality of life that revolves around your family, that revolves around your work, your community, where you're plugged in. Maybe it revolves around your church. But we have to admit that once we get outside that if you think of concentric circles, once we get outside the circle of relationships that's closest to us, then we interact with each other mainly through cultural events and politics. And if we don't have the truth in those things, it drives us back to our inward concentric circles, and it doesn't help us to get along with each other. It frays society. And when, I, when I'm talking about society and culture, I'm talking about two different things. Society is the actual physical manifestation of all of us working together, living together, playing together, whatever. Culture is an influencer of society. Culture is the collective communication tools, entertainment tools, uh, the way the art, music, um, and, and news, the way we express ourselves is our culture, and it shapes what happens in our society. And so for our society to be stronger, we need truth, truth in politics, truth in culture. The American people do not trust the media at all. That's a bad thing. We need to do what we can to restore trust, but until then, um, you've got options. And one of the options is this radio program in the present, and my Dr. Tony Beam talking about truth and politics and culture in the future. All right, Mike's on the phone. Mike, thanks for calling. Go ahead. Well, hello, Tony. Thank you for your show. Thank you. Have you uh, defied tyrants with Esther Matt? Have I, have I done what now? Have you heard of the YouTube channel and the movement? It's called Defy Tyrants. It's on YouTube. Okay, Defy. Esther Matt. Yeah. No, I haven't heard of it. I would highly encourage you to look at it. It, it. It's spreading like wildfire. It's uh, it's wall builders, but uh, it's wall builders time infinity with uh, with action points that Christians and churches can t- do. And the doctrine is, consti- is biblically constitutional based, um, and it is known as the doctrine of lesser magistrates. It's, it's, oh yeah, uh, yeah, it's, I know. I'm familiar with that. House- Okay, if you're familiar with the doctrine of lesser tyrants, that's uh, the doctrine uh, of lesser uh, magistrates. That's with that's with Pastor Matt. He started the movement, and uh, it's defied tyrants. But that would dovetail nicely, I think, with uh, your upcoming ventures and your and your new podcast and your new show and so forth. Uh, y'all would make a fantastic team. I am absolutely convinced. Wow. Well, thank you, Mike. First of all, I'm always glad to hear new things that I need to be exposed to. And uh, uh, it seems like I might have heard – no, I haven't really heard of that program, I don't think. I, but but the idea of the movement of the doctrine of lesser magistrates, I've, I've read some about that, and I'm, a, I'm familiar with the concepts that go along with it. So, um, yeah, I will uh, – I'll check that out and see if we can incorporate maybe some of those ideas – and what I'm going to be doing. I'm glad to hear that uh, Dr. Jackson's going to be doing more of the medicine and doing the devotions because uh, obviously he's very good at doing both. He's got a lifetime of, of working in the medical community, but also a lifetime of discipling other people. 
And um, as, I, as I said, I was talking to him last night, and it was just good to uh, catch up a little bit. So I recommend his program, and I, I know he would recommend mine. And we're just trying to create space where the truth can dwell and have the opportunity to make our society better. But if we're going to make society better, we've got to have the truth, and we've got to have it in politics and culture for sure. Now, um, occasionally— uh, and, and, and by the way, when, when I say truth, I'm talking about biblical truth. I'm not talking about somebody's idea about truth or somebody's thoughts or imaginations. I'm talking about the truth that comes solely from the Word of God. Because you have, to, in order to have truth, you have to have a standard. Truth has to relate to something. Uh, if truth is relative to itself, then you don't really have anything that's concrete. And the illustration that I like best about that is, you know, it's the difference between being in a sailboat at night and navigating by a light on top of the mast or looking beyond that light and navigating by the stars. The stars are fixed in the heavens in terms of our ability to look at them and to determine where we are. Um, the, the light on the top of a mast of, of your own ship is simply telling you what to do based on what you're already doing. It doesn't give you any new information. It's not tethered to something that's beyond the experience you're currently having, so it can't really do anything to make your situation better. But when you look beyond that, we find that there's a transcendent way that you can know truth, and that's if it's tethered to a God who is transformative, a God who's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, a God who loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we might have life and have it abundantly, uh, that all who believe in him will have that. So, all right. Um, the grand jury, the special grand jury report has landed from Georgia with a thud. I mean, how many times are we going to be told, we've got him, it's this one, just wait till this report comes out. I don't know how many times I've had that conversation on this program where somebody will call up and say, well, just wait till, wait until Mueller's report lands. Thud. Wait until, just, just wait until all these documents, this investigation on these documents is revealed. Thud. Well, what about this report coming out of Georgia? What about New York? What about the fact that the Trump organization in New York is being investigated and, and they've done a lot of bad thud? Well, now we've got another thud, and it's from Georgia. Um, this is Andrew McCarthy today writing for National Review. He says, well, I hope you weren't waiting on the edge of your seat on this one. <laughs> I love that as an opening line. As we noted on Monday, Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney directed that yesterday, he, they were, he was writing this yesterday, so, but it, he said today, would be the day for the release of three portions of the final report prepared by the special state grand jury that's been investigating Trump campaign efforts to undo the 2020 election result in Georgia. Uh, the redacted report has now been published, and it tells us absolutely nothing that we didn't already know. And that's about what was was expected. There's a section in there that is 
designated to list people who likely committed perjury. So they're saying, here's some people you might want to go. The grand jury is basically saying, here's some people you might want to indict for perjury because we think they might have been less than truthful on the stand. Um, it, it's just that we, we really don't know much. The final report explains that the special grand jury spent the last seven months of 2022 scrutinizing the facts and circumstances relating directly or indirectly to possible attempts to disrupt the lawful administration of the 2020 presidential elections in the state of Georgia. They heard testimony from about 75 witnesses. In its introduction, the grand jury states, we find by a unanimous vote that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning that election. This conclusion, the major one published today, is no surprise. It tracks the state investigations that followed the election. It is stated emphatically. It appears to reject the Trump's campaign contentions to the contrary, which follows from the fact that the other report portions released suggest that the special grand jury has recommended that change, uh, charges be filed, but again, we don't know against who, regarding false testimony. The final report states a majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. We don't even know if the evidence is compelling or not. We don't know who it is. We don't know what they said. We, we, don't, we really don't know anything. A majority believes that perjury may have, been, may have been committed, and then they recommend charges where the evidence is compelling. Well, you know, if the evidence was that compelling, it sounds to me like they would have said, we recommend that you charge these people with perjury because they perjured themselves on the stand. This is some kind of nebulous cloud-like thing that's, you know, kind of in the penumbras of, of the jury. I just love that word. So the penumbras of the jury's deliberation, it just kind of rose out of nowhere. It doesn't sound like it's rooted in anything. We were told that this was coming in McBurney's ruling on Monday. As today's succinct sweeping statement does not identify which witnesses are believed to have lied and what about, there isn't much to say about it. McCarthy says, I'd simply add that perjury is easier to recognize than it is to prove. That is, it's usually not hard to tell in real time or even reading from a transcript when someone has given misleading or suspicious testimony. But perjury is a hard crime to prove because it requires that the questions be crystal clear and the answers be plainly, intentionally false. A lot of false testimony falls in the gray area, and it's a simpler matter to conclude that someone's overall testimony is false than to parse out individual Pro provable false statements. Ergo, the fact that the grand jury has recommended perjury prosecutions doesn't necessarily mean that there will be any perjury prosecutions. I, I bet there'll be something. Because the, there's, there's no bombshell announcement here. This, you can't sit for seven months, have a grand jury, have grand jury expenses to the state, and then it come up with an with a you know an empty sack. They're going to have to figure. They're going to charge somebody with something, and then they're going to have egg on their face if they can't prove it. Finally, in the report's conclusion, this seems to be the most important assertion, a caveat rather than a finding. 
If this report fails to include any potential violations of reference statues that were known uh, shown in the investigation, we acknowledge the discretion of the district attorney to seek indictments where she finds sufficient cause. So the grand jurors elaborate that they're not election law experts or criminal lawyers. And so they're saying, um, even though we heard all this evidence, we, it, you know, we, it might be that the prosecutor needs to bring charges anyway. That's not what the grand jury is supposed to do. They're supposed to listen to the evidence and render a verdict on whether or not a crime has been committed. They even fudged on that. You talk about landing with a thud.